Welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome to the conversation today, Peter Harmer. Peter, thank you for joining. Great pleasure, Melissa. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So in this particular series, I've sort of used the line of no more secrets, extraordinary leaders share their journey from good to great. And Peter, before we jump into the conversation, I might just briefly share with the audience um, just a brief bio so they're familiar with you. So um, Peter has over 40 years experience in the Australian and international insurance and financial sectors. Um, formerly, Peter was Chief Executive Officer of the Insurance Australia Group, IAG, um, CGU Insurance, Aon Limited UK, Aon Risk Services Australia Pacific and Aon Re Australia, and has successfully led business growth agendas, major acquisitions and industry roll-ups. Today, Peter is a non-executive director uh, involved with Commonwealth Bank, NIB Holdings, NIB Health Funds, AUB Group, Law Cover Limited, and is a board advisor for Bain & Company. Peter, thrilled to have you join the conversation um, with your extraordinary background and leadership. I'd just love to invite you firstly, for anyone in the audience who hasn't come across you before, let's just start with who are you as a person? You know, where do you come from? What's your background? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, well, born in the country, country Victoria, um, schooled in uh, Melbourne, uh, met my wife of 40 years as of a couple of weeks ago at high school. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, have three uh, gorgeous children, one of whom lives in the UK, two of which have uh, produced the requisite grandchildren. Uh, uh, last one was two weeks ago, so wow. we're very happy. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of really enjoying this transition from executive to non-executive life. Having a portfolio of activities, as they as they say, is uh, hugely exciting, really challenging, and uh, it feels like a great time of life. Fantastic. Now, you had, um, I remember when you and I first connected, there was a military uh, stage of your background initially, I think? Yes, I, um, uh, I had a scholarship to the Royal Military College at Duntroon. Um, and unfortunately, I loved it. Uh, unfortunately, I fell very ill at the end of the first year, spent quite a bit of time in hospital, came back to Melbourne, as it was then, to uh, my home to recuperate. Uh, recuperation took a lot longer than anticipated. I took a transfer to the Portsea uh, Officer Cadet School. By then, my um, my girlfriend from high school, who said is now my wife, returned from overseas, uh, and we decided that um, we were going to get married. And the military was not a life for her, so I, I just moved into cadre staff at the Army Reserve for a while, uh, and then went and got a civilian job, and just happened to find a job with an insurance company. Okay. So um, a happy accident landing in the insurance space. And we'll circle back around to that because I think you made some observations to me around transitioning in from a sort of disciplined military career and, and what you found when you landed there. Can I ask right up the front before we start, what's your perspective on whether leaders are born or made, Peter? Oh, wow. Um, and I think everyone, everyone who has had a leadership position has probably ask themselves that question. I'm not sure I've got a, a cogent answer for you. The, the one thing I would say is that um, I, I think it's more likely that they are made um, and that, that they are formed through their very early experiences. So if I think about what, what I believe are some of the, the real characteristics of good leaders, they include things like humility, uh, empathy, um, curiosity, you know, uh, courage, 
uh, and and those are things I think that are, are formed. Those kind of characteristics are formed in your in your early years. So, and I, I've seen people in my career who have become incredible leaders, but but perhaps it's it's taken some time for them to figure out well what is the model that's going to work for them. You know what's what's going to feel really authentic for them. So I, I'd hate to think in a way that leaders were born because it would actually deprive so many of, you know, what is uh, an amazing challenge and an amazing opportunity. Mm. Okay, so let's move then to your career. And maybe Peter will spend some time just stepping through some of those pivotal moments that stand out for you that kind of shifted your own leadership from good to great. Well, firstly, um, uh, I, I sort of cringe at the at the concept of, of um, good to great, or even being considered in, in that sort of way, I think you know anyone who believes that they've arrived at a position of leadership is fooling themselves. It's a constant journey. You're always learning, and you're always you should always be trying to to improve. But certainly, I think some of the, the key moments for for me, um, I mean, one was when I I realised that I had an opportunity to shift from being what what I call a technical leader, somebody who who sort of almost fell into their position of leadership because um, because of their technical skills and abilities. And that was at the as I transitioned from Aon Re, which was a small business, but very focused on, you know, modeling both um, financial modeling and natural uh, peril, you know, like as in catastrophe peril modeling. Okay. So quite quite sort of, um, I, I guess, cerebral. I wasn't a modeler, but I actually, uh, I think, I think I figured out how to actually interpret those the outputs from those models in a way that could make sense for our, our clients. Um, in, in the transition from that role to the own services role, which was a much bigger people management job, I, I, I sort of realised that I couldn't continue to lead in the way that I had led. And um, there, there was a, uh, an apocryphal moment in one of my very early leadership team meetings when uh, you know I was trying to establish the importance of the what we what we call now the employee value proposition. Mm -hmm. I was getting quite a lot of resistance. And so I asked one of the, you know, middle-aged white men around the table if uh, if they would actually draw um, the organization as a geometric shape on the whiteboard. And after a lot of resistance, he drew what you probably would expect, which was a triangle. I asked him to identify where we were and he drew a circle around the apex. I said, where are all our people? And he drew a line across the bottom. And I said, well, there's the fundamental problem. And I drew the triangle up the other way. And I said, yes, we are at this apex, but it's at the bottom. And our role is to facilitate, you know, to create the opportunity for, for everyone that's touching our clients every day to do the very best job they can for our customers. And I think that was a really important moment for me to understand that I had to find a way to leverage my, my leadership, whatever, whatever that meant at the time. Um, and that meant I had to be able to deliver the results through people. Um, and, and I think probably from that moment, uh, which was the the year 2000 as it turns out um you know my i would like to think that my leadership has been characterized very much uh, by the way that uh, i focused on uh, our people so you shared with me some extraordinary targets that you set yourself was that that team or was that the job after that no that that was that role it wasn't necessarily it wasn't that first team that i inherited mm -hmm. um but I, I think what i had learned in the previous role, um, and I, I, I had merged two smaller companies to create one bigger company um, about four or five years earlier. And I had 
um, brought in uh, an external consultant, uh, a lady who ran a very small boutique consultancy to do what I called then a cultural review. I wanted to understand what were the cultures of both organisations. So I, I could sort of think through what needed to happen for this to be a very happy marriage of, of yes. two very proud organisations. And, and, and through that process, um, I heard things like, oh, Peter's business plan, you know, Peter's plan. Uh, and I realised that, in fact, yes, I had built the plan, you know, in, in a vacuum in my office. And, you know, I basically just delivered it to people to say, this is what we're going to do. And I realised that I've missed an opportunity to involve others and, and generate some, you know, belief and motivation. And, 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 and the absence of that, of course, um, it was much more difficult to mobilise the organisation. Now, as it turned out, it was a very successful business, but it was a huge learning. So when I went into the owner of services role, a bigger platform, many more people, I took my time and I co-opted a group of, of um, I, I'm going to say sort of mid-level executives. That's probably a, not a very kind term, but, but they weren't my direct reports. They were people that were scattered across the organisation in quite important roles, but still had a really good connection to, um, to, the, to the employee um, population. And I asked them to help me think through, um, you know, how we ought to design the way forward to a very different future. And we created out of that what we called our change kit. And it was a series of facts, findings and conclusions grouped under seven strategic business drivers. And, um, you know, under, under the, the business driver of say revenue growth, a fact might be we had no way of really understanding what our clients uh, needed, how they used our products and services. The, um, the, the, the finding might be, well, you know, in the absence of that, um, we can't focus on product development um, and the conclusion therefore would be, you know, we have no control over our revenue destiny and therefore our profitability. Yes. Um, and I try to engage as many people across the organisation as I could, some were one-on-ones and, and right through the spectrum to, you know, brown bag lunches with 15 people. But I reckon I covered in excess of 95% of, of staff and um, in, in so doing, I would ask them to challenge the facts and the findings and the conclusions, because if I got it wrong, or if the team had got it wrong, then the recommendation for action would be very different. So at the end of what was a nine month process, we, we then designed what those recommendations for action would be. So when they came out, almost everybody in the organization recognized them. Um, and so there was a much higher level of, of buy-in. As a consequence of that, we set a four-year plan, which um, included a, a, a uh, almost doubling, well, to increase the top line by in excess of 60% and to more than double the bottom line. Um, and when I took it to uh, our head office, uh, the head office of the international business was run out of Rotterdam of all places um, at the time. Um, the, uh, and I was presenting to the chairman of the group together with the CFO and the CFO let, let out a, an involuntary laugh at the audacity of the, of the goals. And I, the chairman must have seen that I was a bit taken aback and, and embarrassed and, and being sort of a very proper Dutch gentleman, he, uh, you know, he, he sought to save um, you know, my embarrassment and he said, look, you know, we commend you on your, um, you know, your ambition and, and if you achieve all of that, then, um, you know, then we'll make sure you and the management team are well looked after. Well, I didn't think about that ever again. Um, yeah, at the end of the first year, my CFO came to see me and said, look, the group CFO had asked him to put aside a provision for bonus pool and so on. 
so forth. And anyway, we, we delivered in excess of those targets uh, within three years. In fact, we doubled the top line and tripled the bottom line. And I think most importantly, we improved employee engagement enormously. Um, we didn't call it that back then, but morale certainly, certainly went through, through the roof. Um, and at, at that time, uh, as we closed that financial year, uh, we were advised, uh, my, my CFO and I were advised of the bonus pool that was available to my leadership team. So I got the CFO to run some numbers for me and I, I went to my leadership team and said, look, um, unbeknownst to us, this provision has been set aside for the purpose of rewarding uh, us, you know. Um, and if we were to do that, the bonus that each of us would receive would be equivalent to one year's salary. Um, but Glenn's run the numbers. And in fact, uh, we have enough in that pool to pay every single employee who was on the books at the close of that financial year, which was 31.12 for us, a two week bonus. Um, and, and uniformly and instantaneously, everyone around the table said, well, let's do that. Um, and, and that was, it was incredible because I think everybody felt that, um, you know, there was some reward for the hard work and that it was, it was shared in a very sort of, uh, I guess, egalitarian way. Can I pause on that? What, what, where do you think that, um, you know, egalitarian drive or desire comes from? It's um, a good question. I, I mean, I've always been very driven by a sense of fairness, equity, maybe even justice. Um, I, I don't like seeing wrong in the world. I don't think anybody does, but, you know, I, I don't like to walk past that kind of stuff. There was a book in the, I'm going to say it was the 80s, it may well have been the 90s. In fact, it would have been the 90s that I read by Ricardo Semler. And I can't remember the name of the book, but it, it, it was all about the business that he'd inherited in Brazil from his father. Yes. Uh, and he decided to essentially democratise the business from decision-making to weight setting to the whole lot. Um, and, and in fact, a massive risk for an owner of a business like that. Um, there were caps on how much executives could get paid as in terms of multiples of the lowest paid person in the organisation. A big chunk of the profits was always distributed amongst the staff, et cetera. Um, and the, and the, engagement that that very sort of fair approach engendered really inspired me um so I, I wouldn't say it was that alone but it was just perhaps one one sort of um you know one factor in my thinking around sort of how do you make workplaces fair more equitable where people feel that there is reward for effort um and and in in, in so doing um it raises questions around if you're going to promote fairness and equity, then you've got to you've got to deal with poor performance and poor behaviour as well. It's it's a it's a two sided street, so to speak. Okay, so um, you shared with me after you delivered that plan and um, delivered those incredible results. You had some questions about sort of reinventing yourself at that point, or. Yes, um, I, I smile, but I should wince. Uh, <laughs> when, when we did a roadshow to um, share the the success with all of our people, um, I had one young fellow in Perth who who said, you know, put his hand up, and he said, oh, you know, it's just been amazing to be part of all of this. And you know, he said to me, Peter, what comes next? Mm. And I didn't have a what's next. I, you know, I must admit, I just wanted to have a rest. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> 
But um, it, it, it sort of, it taught me a really good lesson because I wasn't prepared for the next wave. You know, I, I, I sort of felt like the team had delivered something really valuable, really important, but I, I hadn't used that time to start to think about, well, once we get the business to that level of performance, where does it go next? Um, and I probably, I probably lost a year in maybe, yes, maybe the best part of the year in, in then starting to have, having to start the thinking process around where to from here um, once we'd already achieved something. So you, you do lose a little bit of momentum. Mm. There was an enormous amount of goodwill in the business, so we're able to, to pick that up. Um, where, where I tried to go was to take the business from a high-performing business that had really found a way of understanding its clients, its customers' needs, uh, being very focused around you know high quality services with a very strong sort of proposition for um, our, our people. I tried to take the business into what, what I call the purpose space to, to really try and find what, what was our company's noble purpose. Um, and I, I have to say, it, I didn't succeed. Um, it was probably a, a really, on reflection, it, it didn't feel like it at the time, but on reflection, it was a really good learning opportunity. Um, the business continued to be very successful, um, but it was part of my reinvention. I didn't achieve the reinvention in, in, in the remaining time I had in that in that role. One of the reasons it didn't succeed is because I made the same mistake I'd made nearly 10 years earlier, and uh, I dreamt it up in my little office in the corner in the dark, right? Um, and, and, you know, it was a terrible mistake to make, but essentially I, I settled on a purpose that I felt described what I wanted the business to be, not what it was today. Um, and, uh, you know, in subsequent roles, I, I managed to correct that, that mistake. Um, but, that, but that was, the, the reinvention took some time. Uh, it, it didn't happen overnight and it, it didn't start off uh, terribly well. So can we move now to London um, on that journey? You took on a really big role um, when you got to London. Yes. Well, the London office was probably one of the most important parts of, of Aon's operation at the time. London, as many people will, will know, is the sort of centre of the insurance universe, the London market, the Lloyd's market. Um, it, it's really the origins of um, insurance. And our London office had been sort of the jewel in the crown. It had been incredibly profitable. However, as a, as a result of some regulatory intervention in the US, there were certain income. So I think as as Many people will know London is the centre of the insurance universe. The London and Lloyd's market, of course, are, are really well known. It, it's the origins of, of insurance. And Aon's London office had been the jewel in the crown for many years. Um, and of course, the entire network relied very heavily on London because many of their more difficult placements, insurance placements needed to go through that brokerage to get into the, uh, the London underwriting market. Um, unfortunately, um, there had been some regulatory changes in the US which impacted all the global brokers operations around the kinds of income that they could earn. And so certain income streams became illegal. Um, and as a consequence, there, there was a, a, an overnight change to uh, Aon UK's uh, economic model. Mm -hmm. And over the, the next sort of three years or so, they've been unable to adjust their business model to sort of fit the new economics. And um, the, the then CEO had been in the role for 25 years. And I think there was a view that it, it was 
very hard to change something dramatically that you've built for that period of time. So the global CEO asked me at very short notice if I would go move to London and take on this this role, which I which I did. Um, and uh, you know, so I was there for about six months um, before my wife and uh, daughter arrived. Although my eldest son did come across in the second month in the second month or something, which was nice to have a bit of time with him. So, yeah. That's great. So you arrived. Tell tell me about that because it was very different than than you know the yeah. way you worked previously. Yes. Uh, look, the London market. Um, I, I had dealt in the London market for many many years, so. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why the group CEO decided to uh, ask me to take on that role was that I, I knew enough about the marketplace, um, but not 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 enough to be considered an insider. So I could bring a, a fresh set of eyes. Um, it, it all happened rather suddenly for the CEO who was exiting, and that was rather difficult because I'd, I'd always sort of considered him to be somewhat of a mentor and we'd had a very close working relationship over the years, so that was quite challenging. Um, and I basically arrived on a Saturday and on the Monday morning I turned up to work. Now, Aon's offices were in a, a compound um, and it, the compound comprised about six or seven buildings and Aon occupied about four of them. Uh, there was a gatehouse at the front that had two apartments and I, I lived in one of those apartments for a few weeks until I found somewhere more permanent. But the main, um, the, 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 the other buildings right across from that had five floors and then there were other bigger buildings dotted around the, the compound. So that building with five floors, the very top floor was the executive floor. Um, and uh, the other floors comprised uh, the, the insurance division, which was sort of, you know, um, I guess the higher profile of the businesses in, in, the, in the London operation. So at seven o'clock in the morning, uh, I'm at my new desk uh, and uh, there was a tap on the glass panel beside the door and there was a chap standing there in a white tunic with um, a grey and white checked trousers. And he said, good morning, sir. Good morning. He said, sir, my name is Rodney. I said, who are you, Rodney? He said to me, I'm your personal chef. He said, would sir like breakfast? I said, I've already had my breakfast. Thanks, Rodney. And I watched that morning as the executives came in one by one through to about 10.30 and got served a full cooked breakfast in their offices. Um, and this is a company that is losing money, like as in bleeding cash, was described as technically insolvent by the Financial Services Authority, which was the then regulator. Um, and when I left that building later in the day to walk across to the other buildings where all of our brokers were, um, I, I, I counted 17 Mercedes-Benz limos in the quadrangle waiting to pick up their charges to take them home. So the first set of decisions I made that week was to um, uh, close the executive floor. Um, and we basically refitted that as a what, what we called a client suite. So we um, basically put in a commercial kitchen, some dining rooms and lots of client rooms. Yes. And I asked every executive that had previously occupied space in that floor to um, insert themselves onto a trading floor where our brokers were. Our brokers were sitting in cramped conditions, cheek to jowl. Um, the air conditioning barely worked. You know, So in summer, it was stiflingly hot. In winter, it was freezing. Um, if you didn't get to use the bathroom before 10 o'clock, the advice was don't don't bother go home. It was just yeah. dreadful. I mean, yeah. you can just imagine um, those conditions. 
And uh, I'd also come to an arrangement with um, the CFO that we then put to the 17 or 16 of the 17 drivers uh, that they could buy their cars at book value, which was a significant benefit, and that we would provide them with a minimum of six months guaranteed work to help them set up their own um, chauffeur business. 11 of the 16 took the offer, uh, took the car, and five decided that they would just go and do something else. And the one that, um, uh, that I, I couldn't um, essentially get rid of was uh, contractually provided to the deputy chairman who was my number two. So, um, and he was unwilling to let the car and driver go and uh, contractually I couldn't force him. But what, what um, he did agree to was to um, turn that into a company asset as opposed to a private sort of asset. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, the closure of the executive floor, the build out of the client suite the getting rid of some of the trappings of executive largesse together with the executives now being on, on trading floors, um, it sent a pretty strong message that, you know, things had to change. And I imagine you saw some turnover in those executive levels. Yes, it was interesting. And, and you know, knowing that we were talking today, I was just sort of reflecting on that time again this morning. And... Those executives, by and large, were very gracious. You know, I I, um, I look back now and and think actually it could have been far more difficult. Many of them realised within the end by the end of that first week that that the extent of change that was coming was not going to make them very comfortable. Mm. You know, the the London insurance market is actually a, a very lucrative place to work. It can be, and you know these guys have been well remunerated over the years. Um, every single one of them except one chose to move on and they did so in a extremely um, respectful and thoughtful way um, and so I, I, I really am sort of grateful for, for the, um, the way that they um, ported themselves through through that challenging time. I guess what I hadn't realized um, when all of that occurred and it happened pretty quickly uh, was that, the next cadre of leaders, in some ways, many of them had built up expectations of living the same life that these chaps, and they were predominantly men, yes. um, were now leaving. Um, and so I, I thought I was on the way to a solution, but in fact, all I had done is push the problem a little further down the, down the road and not, not completely, but by and large, I would say more than half of the next group of leaders ended up moving on within the next 12 months as well, because really I hadn't solved the problem. I, you know, I, I just given it a different face and a different name. What did you take out of that whole experience? What do you think were, were some of the biggest leadership learnings that you lent on from that experience? Um, I, I think, well, one, one of them is people, people are watching everything you do. Mm. Um, and you, you know, you, you have to realise that even on weekends, my wife used to get amazed that, you know, just the number of people you would bump into walking down the street. Um, so you're always on show. You know, there, there, there's never a moment when you you uh, are not in your role and um, and you, you really need to be mindful of that. And therefore, things that, you, things that you do, and just as importantly, things that you don't do, send very strong messages around what's, important mm. and so when when I went to staff to say we have some really tough things that we have to do because economically our business is not sustainable um, and we're going to find this quite challenging 
I think I'd like to believe that, you know, I started with a bit of credibility because I'd sorted out some of the biggest problems that they could see looking up. You know, it was, it was just the fact that, that the, the fat cats, so to speak, um, weren't prepared to take any of their own hard medicine. Um, and so, you know, I think that was really important. I, I, I think, I, you know, I think I shared with you also that at the end of my first month, my first management meeting, through a rather circuitous route, I, I discovered that um, we had a um, pretty significant problem in the lack of proper controls, risk controls around the way we engage third parties to help source business in different parts of the world. And that led to a disclosure to um, the FSA, uh, led to a two and a half year investigation that, that uh, covered six different international jurisdictions, including the US under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and in the UK uh, under the uh, anti-bribery uh, laws. It led to, um, well, it led to 12,000 payments to third parties being reviewed. 343 of them were considered suspicious on deep review by an external law firm. 48 of those were what we called toxic, which meant that there was a serious, serious um, problem, either proven bribery or uh, a, a suspicion deeply sort of held um, uh, enough for us to take action on. It led to seven separate notifications to the Serious Organised Crime Authority. Um, it led to a series of um, security risks for me personally and the, and the family. Uh, obviously, I had to stop payments to third parties. These third parties, in many cases, had um, made forward promises of money to come to people who had done favours for them in some of these jurisdictions. Um, and uh, and they were now very scared, right? So, um, yeah, and I, you know, we've now seen this play out with other companies and certainly in the insurance space, we've seen almost all of the major uh, London-based brokerages uh, have to, um, um, we'll go through something similar. Um, most of that occurred, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago. But I, I think, because of the anti-tipping um, off laws, I, I couldn't actually disclose any any facts to anyone outside of my legal team, which meant that the group CEO had to be essentially kept in the dark. Uh, our group general counsel was very particular to ensure that he didn't become a, a, like a fact witness, which was yeah. highly understandable. So it was a it felt like a pretty lonely period of, of time, um, and. Uh, uh, again, I, I think some key lessons for me were around, uh, I guess there were two that really spring out. One is um, it's very easy in a, in a situation like that to trust no one and to, you know, um, sort of hiding within your shell. Um, but actually, if you sort of think a bit more expansively around what you're facing into and you look a bit more expansively at those around you, you can figure out who are the ones that you really can trust. Um, and just as importantly, those that perhaps you, you you shouldn't. And I think the other lesson for me was just when you think you you are at your breaking point, you find another reservoir of, of energy and commitment. And and I think it just says to me that people are more resilient than they believe. You know, they 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 could be when they're faced you know up against it. Um, Peter, what an incredible time! And you know, we we know that the CEO roles can be very lonely anyway, but to be completely isolated like that um, in terms of cut off from those support networks and, and for you to kind of vulnerably share, you get to those moments where you think, you know, have I, have I got 
um, you know, what it takes to get through this. Did you have moments on the way through where you thought, am I up to this? Yes, I, I, without a doubt. I mean, I, I think that that sort of self-doubt um, in some ways fell into two buckets. Um, one was, have I missed something in understanding the actual issues that have taken place? You know, this is, if, if, if I hadn't, then this has been going on for decades and it's a market problem, yes. right? If I have, I'm, I could potentially be killing a business for the, the wrong reasons, right? So, again, um, you know, you, you lean heavily on people like, well, in, in this situation, our, our internal and external lawyers. You know, I, I needed to continue to sort of check almost my insanity. You know, uh, some of this stuff was so... Um, um, I, out of anything that you would expect to find in a business, right? It, it, it was stuff that movies are made of, right? I was going to say, it's a movie script. Yeah. So, so you you often wonder if you know, is it real, or, or am I am I sort of, you know, creating this problem? And then the other the other bucket of self doubt, of course, is you know, am, am I going to be able to see this through? You know, what does the other side look like? Um, uh, you know, who am I going to become? Uh, it, you know, it, it's. Um, you know, it, we, we ended up resolving the challenge and the group CEO asked me to take on uh, another role, uh, which would be even more global in nature. Um, and it would have meant me being on the road about three weeks of the month. And I, I'd already spent an awful lot of time on the road to and fro the US, et cetera. And I was quite excited about it, but I, I went home to talk to my wife about it. And I said, well, look, you know, the boss has offered me this role. Um, and I'm, you know, she could see I was super excited, and her eyes started to well up. Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, I realised straight away I, I was just thinking about myself. You know, I was super excited, and, and I said to her, you know, what would you like to do? And she just said to me, I'd like to go home. And uh, so that's what we did. I said, well, I'm going to ring the boss now and tell him we're going home. She said, no, no, no. She said, look, we should think about it. We should. And I said, no, no. I, I, you, I knew, I knew intuitively straight away that I had completely underestimated the impact of that th three years as it was um, on, on her. And uh, and as a consequence, I didn't feel all that wonderful about the person I had become because of, well, I shouldn't blame the process. I, I, I'd let myself, I guess, get into that situation. But um, yeah, so I, I rang the group CEO that night and I said, look, you know, we've talked about it and actually we want to go home. He, he, he was amazing. I mean, just, just amazing. And I did learn an awful lot and um, from, um, case that he, he continues as the CEO of Aon today yeah. in his 17th or 18th year, um, an amazing human being. But um, he, he was very generous. He helped us get back to Australia. Uh, he was keen for me to do some kind of global role from Sydney. And, you know, I think I desperately wanted that. You know, I'd had 23 years with Aon, but after the Christmas break, I sort of realised that, you know, minister without portfolio, it's, you know, slow and agonising death. So, uh, we finally agreed that we were part company and uh, we did so on the best of terms. So then you commenced your sort of final CEO phase anyway with a couple of CEO roles in the Australian market. Mm, all with the same company, IAG. So, yes, I, I, uh, I had known Mike Wilkins for many years. Um, Mike was the then CEO of IAG and he asked me if I would consider taking on the role of CEO of CGU. And CGU had been led by Duncan West, a good friend um, for the previous two and a half years. But Duncan was Sydney-based, as I was, had uh, two young children and uh, was keen to sort of spend more time in Sydney. 
Um, and so it was a very sort of easy decision for me because knowing both of them, I knew that Duncan, um, you know, would have a good plan. He'd be on, on you know, a good path. And I knew CGU very well. Um, and CGU always had an excellent reputation with its own people, you know, with its customers. Um, a very strong connection with rural and regional communities, um, very strong in, in the SME business sector. So um, Duncan was halfway through a five-year turnaround program. And, and the backstory is CGU was purchased in 2003 by IAG. So this is, this is now the end of 2010. Um, CGU had been purchased in 2003 by IAG. And I don't think the the management of IAG, which was predominantly a home and motor and direct to customer business model, really understood the intricacies or the vagaries of a, a business that was largely commercial and largely uh, distributed through insurance brokers. And as such, um, it, I think it had been starved of investment and perhaps the leadership team wasn't able to mount the right case, but either which way, not only had performance been tracking south for some time, morale was, um, in a pretty bad place as well. And Duncan said to me that if he was going to stay, he he felt that this moment in time was was the right one in which to reevaluate the um, the progress under this massive five year transformation program. And to put it into context, it sounds small beer today, but back then it was a lot of money. It was two hundred and fifty million that they had approval to invest over that period. Um, and I guess what, what I found when I got to CGU was a very downtrodden organisation with great people who were demoralised. Mm. And three months earlier, they had been part of a leadership offsite that uh, Mike had run. And it was a strategy meeting. It was buy, hold or sell various assets. And uh, they went through the assets as to whether they should in, um, buy, uh, in, scale up or invest or, or to sell. And when they got to CGU, um, all bar the nine executives from CGU were at the group. So 57 executives voted to sell CGU. So that was that was wow. the, the feeling of um, rejection that the, the leadership team were facing. Um, and so, you know, I took the opportunity to, um, you know, take Duncan at his word, pause Project Apollo, as it was known, and reevaluate it. My assessment was that Apollo started, um, it, it, like most programs, it had, it had grown in scope over the two and a half years and we'd, it had lost a bit of focus and there was a lot of money being frittered away at the edges. We weren't getting enough traction on the things that really moved the needle. So we very quickly um, just reprioritized. I, I didn't want to do a, a stop change direction. You know, there was a little bit of momentum. I wanted to build on that. Um, and so even, even though if you look back now, you might say, well, actually, it pretty much was stock change direction, but it, I hope it didn't feel like that at the time. You know, and we, we narrowed in on the three or four key things that we had to get right. Um, and, and we sort of cut a lot of the surplus energy that was being wasted um, out. I also sort of built the platform for change, uh, for recommitting to, to the task at hand on uh, our leaders' sense of commitment and obligation to their people. So I said to them, if we don't think we can get this company into a sustainable um, economic position, then the best thing is to sell the business. And that's exactly what we should tell the group CEO. But that means that we think somebody else's management team can do a better job with what are industry leading assets than we can. And I, for one, don't want to, I want to do that. Do that. Um, and so it, it, was, it was interesting to see how quickly that galvanized people. Um, and, uh, and so the, the sort of the mantra, if you like, to support 
the effort was around earning our rights of self-determination. Um, and that, that became sort of, I, I think, the rallying cry. Um, and 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 the, the fact that the reason that was important is because if we if we had mastery over our own, our, our own destiny, then in fact we could be much more certain that we could look after our people, and and that's that was really what it was all all about. So the year the the financial year prior to me taking over the business had had lost four million in free tax uh, money, um, and when we closed out the five year program two and a half years after doing the reset, we made 480 million in pre-tax profit. Um, and again, learning- Small turnaround then, Peter. Small turnaround. Well, I'm sure there are many people out there that, that said, look, it would have happened anyway. But, um, it, it, was, it was wonderful to be a part of because you could just see the pride in people's faces. Um, and, uh, you know, the original goal was to generate 500 million you know, uh, in pre-tax profit set five years earlier, but 200 million of that was earmarked for an acquisition. Right. And one, of the, one of the first things I did is to say, we are in no state to buy something, right? So let's take the 200 million. So the target became 300 million, no acquisition. We need to just focus on getting our own house in, in order. So we did exceed the, the target and taking a lesson from the Aon experience where sharing the bonus pool um, re really did generate the next level of, Sort of motivation and mobilization. Um, in 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 a the public company setting, I couldn't do what I was able to do back in in Aon in a subsidiary of a you know small subsidiary of a big multinational. Um, but we 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 were able to provide a um, a CGU debit card that had a not insignificant amount of cash on it for every. It was the same for everybody. Um, and again, it was the same thing. It was the fact that. I think that the company had thought to share some of the spoils with people. It, it, it could have been more or less money, I suspect, and the impact would probably have been the, the same. Yeah. Um, again, learning from my mistake, or one of my many mistakes at, at Aon, um, before we closed out the, um, the five-year program, we had relaunched the next one. So I, I always had that mental model of the sigmoid curve, you know, to start the next wave of change before you finally delivered the last elements of the, the, the last sort of change. And not lose the time like you did the first time around. Peter, I haven't asked you, you know, there's a um, overriding sense of fairness that comes through in the approach that you've taken um, in each of your leadership roles. I haven't asked you about diversity yet, and I'd just love to turn our mind to that. And, you know, I think we're still not quite seeing the outcomes that we would hope with females moving into sort of certainly CEO roles, but senior executive roles. What's what's your perspective on that? You know, what what perhaps did you try to do in your career? And if I can wrap another question in as well, if you can remember them all, um, do you think you need to sponsor females differently to males? Yeah. Okay. So so maybe um, it's a bit of a stream of consciousness here. Um, uh, firstly, early on when companies began to at least get serious about the thinking required to tackle the diversity challenge. There was a, there was a lot of almost um, sort of rationale being generated about sort of the economic benefits of team, diverse teams making better decisions. And, and yeah, I buy all of that. But if that's the reason for doing it, then we should be ashamed. Right. Um, we, we shouldn't be looking at economic drivers to do what is just right, right? And Brian Swartz said to me, who was the then chairman of IAG, he said he always thought about this through the, the eyes of his daughters. 
you know, um, why should his daughters have less opportunities or have to work harder for the same opportunities than his son did, right? Um, and that got me, that got me thinking. I, I thought that, um, and foolishly, that I, I was reasonably um, uh, liberated, can I use that word, in, in my thinking around this space. And then I did the Harvard Online um, Unconscious Bias Survey. And the results of that horrified me. I, I was actually I was quite distressed uh, when I realised the extent of the biases that that I carry. And I had a a, a coach as part of a group wide leadership development program at the time, and and she was amazing. She was brutal with me, but she was amazing. And uh, and she sort of really helped me unpack. Um, you know why those biases existed and where they might have come from by going back you know through much of my history and, and particularly back to my childhood and one one of the earliest memories i have is work, walking to church with my parents in our country town my sister uh, was beside me and the my baby sister was in the pram in the pusher behind me and next thing i know i get a clip over the side of the head i turn around and my father who was a very um, austere Methodist, um, just turned 90 on Sunday, uh, and he still is, but uh, lovely man. But he, he clipped me over the, the head to get my attention. I turned around sort of with a few tears in my eyes, wondering what I'd done wrong, and he said to me, get on the curb side of your sister. Because yeah. the gentleman takes the splash from the passing car, right? So I came to understand that um, I had always seen in one of my many roles in life was to protect the women around me. Yes. Um, and, you know, the way that played out in business was that if I was to have the same conversation with a male executive and a female executive, the male executive would probably walk out of the room going, well, that was bloody clear. Yeah. And the female executive would walk out going, what was all that about? Because I think what I unconsciously did was, was try not to upset them, was to try and protect them. Often, often the blow or whatever. Yeah. And, and I guess maybe, you know, you grow up playing sport, maybe you're just more used to having those direct and challenging conversations with, with men than you are with, with, with women. But look, I, I, my first reaction was just shame. You know, it was, I, I was really um, distressed. And then I realised actually, we are who we are as a function of our life experiences and we can't change those life experiences. But once you know what your biases are, then if you don't do something about it, that's when you should feel shame. Um, and so I, with my coach, I, I worked on a number of triggers and, and I had to consciously for a long time think about activating those, those triggers um, to make sure that uh, I didn't, you know, inadvertently disadvantage women because of the way I treated them um, versus, versus men. Other things that we did, I had, a, I had a, as a young lady um, by the name, she'll, she'll love the fact that I call her a young lady, I'm sure, Rebecca Isaacson, um, who for me was the model of, she and her then manager uh, were the model of how to successfully integrate um, having children with having a career. And so I spent some time talking with her to understand. So she, she had basically had three children and had successfully returned to her, her role and been promoted in the meantime and so on and so forth and had done it incredibly well. So I really wanted to understand what had gone right for her uh, and maybe you know, what could be better, but certainly there were lots of things going right for her. Our, our own data showed us that um, Oftentimes, women who had had a, a, a child came back, but didn't come back after their second child. Yes. And, I, and, and sort of the anecdotal learning at the time was that by the time you had two children, the cost of childcare meant that there was very little 
economic return in coming back to work. And therefore, if you couldn't get your other needs satisfied, then what was the point? Mm. And what, what Rebecca helped me see was that, and let me describe what her model was. Before she went off on each of those three maternity leaves, or I, I should call it parental leaves, I'm sorry, that's just showing my age, isn't it? Um, she would sit down with her manager and they would have a conversation around how he was going to keep her up to date without intruding on her life while she was at home. And the rationale was that everything was changing so fast all of the time. If she came back in 12 months' time, she may not recognise the place that she'd left. Absolutely. So her manager, religiously, he put in a call, I think it was every week, I encouraged people to make a commitment that they could actually keep. He, he was one of, out of a box, I suspect, right? But maybe it's every fortnight, maybe it's every month. The point is the person who's taking the parental leave has to decide that, right? But the manager then has to commit to following through. And it, it could be just a quick 10 or 15 minute call, even things like um, retaining access to the internet. So when you're scrolling on your social media, if you choose to have a look at the, the company internet, you can actually see who's doing what and, and how the company's traveling and, and yes. staying in touch. So, so um, the other thing that we, we, we so we, we introduced that as a, as a playbook, a parental leave playbook was you know, based on the Rebecca Isaacson story. Um, you know, how managers needed to create those kind of opportunities. Now, an employee may say, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear from you. Well, that's fine. At least we, we've tried to give you, you know, the option. Uh, and I'm sure there are things that we could have done better, but I do think it was a step forward. The, the, uh, the other thing, well, there's a couple of other, other things that, um, that we did that I, I, I think were important. I also realised that when, when the business came under stress, which is all the time, right? There's always something happening. We often call meetings at 7.30, 8 o'clock or 6 p.m. at night. Well, that disadvantaged so many, more often women than men, right? Because, you know, um, rightly or wrongly, you know, women continue to be predominantly the primary. Yes. I know it's, it is rebalancing, um, but it's still the case. Um, and, and so we were putting women in, in an invidious position. Either they couldn't attend and therefore they looked like they didn't care or they did attend and it caused an untold amounts of stress trying to work out what to do. Could I get grandma to come over? Can I impose upon my husband whose job's so important, you know, to get home and, you know, get the kids from school? So we said no, no, no meetings before 10 and none that finish after four. Right? Now, every now and again, particularly for my leadership team, there was a, a crunch session, but we, we would then try and do it so that someone could phone in after the crisis hour with, you know, between dinner and bedtime. And so yes. on. So that, that was really important. The other thing that I, I, I noticed happening was uh, if a manager, a manager sometimes would take one of their male employees out for a drink after work, but oftentimes they wouldn't take, you know, if it was a male manager, wouldn't take a female employee. Um, Two reasons, I guess, maybe for many, but one, either or both might have been a bit uncomfortable in that situation. It's silly, isn't it, right? Someone looks at two colleagues having a, male colleagues having a drink and they go, well, it's two male colleagues having a drink. Yeah. Someone has a look at a male colleague and a female colleague having a drink and suddenly there's another story, right? It's just, it's it's actually a bit sickening. So in, in, those, in those casual interactions, relationships are formed, information transfers from one to the other. Um, the people are advantaged in, in that model. And those that can't participate in that kind of information transfer are disadvantaged. Um, and so, you know, we, we had to try and find a way of at least just 
ventilating that as, a, as an issue and that if managers we didn't want to stop managers catching up socially with people but they had to work out a way to make sure it was they had an inclusive model not an exclusive model um so that, those were just, oh, the other thing sorry probably the last thing there's probably many more the last thing that comes to mind is i, I also observed that while people were on parental leave they were essentially out of sight out of mind and they weren't considered for promotional opportunities um, and, 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 and as part of the parental leave playbook, um, we included a requirement that was actually audited to ensure that people who were not at work for whatever reason, carers leave or parental leave, were considered for those opportunities. Um, I'm pleased to say that quite a number of people who were on parental leave actually received promotions and pay rises whilst they were uh, you know, away from the office. Fantastic. Peter, um, you know, it just as I was listening to that, I was reflecting back on a, well, two things, fairness, but also equality you singled out earlier in our conversation around curiosity. And yeah, yeah and I think that, um, you know, just what you've talked through there just demonstrates a real curiosity from you to understand how to make a real impact and a change. Um, and I think that's just an enormous insight for, for people watching this. Peter, I would love to ask you the final question I ask of everybody. And that is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean? And do you think it needs to change? Yeah, um, interesting question. I mean, starting first of all, perhaps, which is brave leadership. I mean, if I go back to some of those characteristics that I, I talked about earlier, um, you know, I, I think, having a curious mind, um, you know, being empathetic or um, being prepared to share vulnerabilities. You know, people want to be able to relate to you um, and they need to know who you are, um, the good, the bad and the, the ugly, right? Uh, having courage, you know, to, to back yourself. You know, you, you have reached a position of leadership because someone somewhere has observed that people are prepared to follow you. So if there's no followership, there's no leadership, right? So what is it that makes you followable, right? It is probably, I'd say nine times out of 10, is because people trust that you're going to look after them and in whatever that actually means. And so being brave to look after them, you know, having the courage to, to take the hard decisions, to, to, to know, to recognise that, you know, happy customers are only served by happy people, right? So how is it that you can motivate um, and therefore mobilise people and help them find meaning in what it is that they do? Um, and so I think that's brave leadership because it, 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 it means, in essence, that you've got to be looking for change. Progress isn't made without change, right? Change for change's sake is just energy sapping. Um, and so there has to be purpose about the change. Um, and that's why we need brave leaders, right? We, we just can't, cannot stand still. If I then sort of insert the word feminine into that definition, I, I think that um, women have an opportunity to be far more in control, perhaps, than some are prepared to realise. And even if we just reflect on some of the things that we've talked about, being able to call out, call out those, those, I'm going to call them unconscious practices in the system, the sad thing is some of them are probably very conscious, but I, I, I won't go there. That will sound a bit churlish. But, but the things that actually militate against you developing as a leader, the, the, the exclusionary practices that are systemic in many organisations, 
recognize them for what they are, call them out. You don't need to, to stop them, but you need to find, and be good if you could, but you need to find an alternative way that for you to be included, right? And, you know, um, it, it'd be nice to think that leaders out there, male or female, recognize that without any prompting, but that's just not gonna be the case. M many of them will need prompting. And so be brave and, 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 and say, you know, I wanna take control of my leadership journey. Uh, and to do that, I, I need to have conversations with you that cover off these things. And it might well be, you know, how, how I'm going to get access to information, how, how I'm going to get access to promotional opportunities, um, how we're going to manage the distribution of work so that when I need to flex my ability to, to, to put in the hours based on what's happening in my broader life, whether you're male or female, that applies. Um, then, then, you know, being in a position where you can actually have those conversations. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if you weren't brave, if you were passive, you would be waiting for somebody to do it for you. You'd be waiting a very long time, unfortunately. Mm. So be brave, get on the front foot, recognise that a lot of it is actually within your control. Peter, thank you for an extraordinary conversation and congratulations on a wonderful career that now continues in, in a governance um, perspective. Um, but I'm, I'm so thrilled to have had you join the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, talking with me.